I'm Andrew Norton, and this is Completely Optional Knowledge. Tim Berberick is a listener, and you guessed it, he's got a question. Well, my question is, who governs space? Who decides what happens up there? What if someone wants to, you know, carve the face of their leader into the moon? Mm. Who says yay or nay on that? Right. Okay. So, so like when we send people up there, what laws do they abide by and who makes these things up, right? Yeah, exactly. So what got you thinking about this? Well, it was actually during a documentary I was watching at my local Omnimax. You were fully immersed in the space documentary. You were looking at the, uh, the beauty of our galaxy yeah. and you thought laws is what came to your mind. Yeah. Who decides what really happens up there? It's a good question. You're not looking for some sort of loophole, right? Like some sort of like way <laughs> offshore banking kind of stuff. This isn't what this is about. If the opportunity presents itself. No, no I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Andrew Norton, and this is the Completely Optional Knowledge Podcast, brought to you by Greenpeace. Ask, inquire, seek the truth. The show where we take questions that make you go, huh? And we try and make you be like, oh. Joanne Irene Gabrinowitz is, among other oppressive titles, a director of the International Institute of Space Law and an official observer to the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space Legal Subcommittee. There's also another cooler way of addressing her. So would you call yourself a space lawyer? Correct. That is a, that is a very cool business card. It is. <laughs> so the whole reason I'm calling you is because we want to know who governs space? And something tells me this might be a complicated answer. Yes. Space law exists at two levels, at the national level and at the international level. Uh, when Sputnik went up, it scared the bejeevers out of everybody. It's a Russian satellite. Right. You know, it seems today silly that we would be so scared by this benign little experiment. But back then, this was high tech. And it represented the ability to put a nuclear weapon in space. And that's what the importance of Sputnik was. And the nations of the world said, nope, don't want to go there. So they created space law because there were no rules. I mean, this was brand new. Nobody knew what to do with this. It all seems like so many overlapping interests and it seems like a, a very difficult thing to get your head around. It's a highly political process. Very, very contentious, but it's a compromise between two positions. One position was first come, first serve, and the other position was, no, if space is the province of all mankind, you can't grab things because most countries don't have the ability to get there yet. And therefore, there has to be a way to mediate this so that by the time we do have the ability to do it, there will still be resources for us. And so this system is based on a compromise between those two positions. And that was a very intentional strategy that they chose because there was the race to go to the moon. Both the Soviet Union and the United States were in a space race. Sure. But they knew whoever got there first, they couldn't claim the moon. And so that made it less of a threat. Is there not an American flag on the moon right now? Yes, but that was placed there as a symbol of national achievement. It is not a claim. So the difference between Columbus and Neil Armstrong is when Columbus planted the Spanish flag, he literally was making a territorial claim 
by the time Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin got to the moon, we had already signed the Outer Space Treaty, and it prohibited what's called appropriation. We could plant the flag and say, we got here first. You can leave some stuff there, but it's not yours. (laughs) That's right. Um, So do you need a passport to get into the space station, the International Space Station? Well, each nation that supplies the modules registers it. It's analogous to a ship at sea. Sure. So if you go from the Japanese module to the American module, you're going from Japanese territory to American territory. You know, you don't have immigration or customs guys standing between the two of them. (laughs) It's just who owns it. And if there was a baby born in space, what nationality would it be? I don't know. (laughs) It tends to be the nationality of the mother. I see. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything on Earth. Antarctica is a global commons like space. But there's no one easy answer for that. That would take a lot of analysis. So the International Space Station or any sort of spaceflight is a very dangerous place. Is there any sort of laws about, you know, gross negligence or anything like that? For instance, if someone dies on a space station, God forbid, and and it's found out because, you know, one person didn't do their job on there. Is there anything concrete around that? There's a space station agreement. In 1988, the partners to the space station agreement came up with this agreement and they signed it. It took five years to negotiate. And it covers torts, it covers criminal law, it covers jurisdiction, and it covers intellectual property. And so that's still in place today. Hmm. Well, it's funny that you talk about intellectual property and it didn't even dawn on me where it's like, you know, someone like Chris Hatfield making up songs or doing YouTube videos. It's actually a place where people are creating things now. And, and, and that becomes an issue in a way. Well, it was more than that. That was the reason that most of the countries sold it to their national legislatures. They said, look, um, we will be able to do scientific experiments in zero gravity. Right. And we will learn things we cannot learn on Earth. And, oh, boy, that's going to lead to intellectual property that we can't create on Earth. And that's why the countries that are participating put money into it. I automatically thought YouTube and and you went to uh, scientific discoveries. I think that's a better that's a better thought. <laughs> so someone discovers a huge breakthrough out in space, who does that belong to? Well, whose module did it occur on? Right. And from which nations were the attending astronauts? I guess there's nothing that's particularly cut and dry and and the same goes for on Earth and up in space, right? Absolutely. Uh people are not simple organisms. And you know, if you hear somebody advocate going into space so we can get rid of our problems on Earth, that's a false premise because whatever our problems are, we bring them with us. They don't stay on Earth. I'm wondering if all your dealings with, with space law make you more optimistic or less optimistic about, about people, about humanity. How do, how do you kind of feel at the end of the day, having worked in this in this field? What I like to say is space law embodies the highest aspirations and the worst fears of humanity. If you look at the Outer Space Treaty, which is a very, very important treaty, it aspires to recognize space is the province of mankind. It's for all of us. It's not just a national achievement. It's a human achievement. That's the highest aspirations. The worst fears are nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction. And we wanted to get a handle on that. So it's how you choose to go. 
because they are both available. It makes sense that this would have been decided and hashed over many times for a long time. But I guess I just thought it was more up in the air than that. They have that really, really well figured out. I assume that there were laws because we had been getting along for the most part out there. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, I very naively thought that, you know, there's this scroll at NASA headquarters saying, okay, (laughs) here are the here are the 50 rules. You know what I mean? I should have known that just like on Earth, it's a bit of a a mesh of different precedents that are set. and, and, And that's the whole thing about law is it's all about how it's interpreted. And there's international law and there's national law and those overlap in weird places throw space in the mix there. It's like as romantic as space lawyer sounds. I, I don't know if I could if I could take it. It seems like it seems like really complex stuff, right? Extremely complicated. I never thought that a job like space lawyer would ever be a thing. I I don't know. She, what to she think. downplays it too. She does. Like if I were a space lawyer, I would lead with that wherever I could, you know? Like pick up the phone, Ed Norton Space Lawyer. You know? <laughs> I don't know how you get that on the license plate, but mine would definitely have it. <laughs> well, you know, I don't think you need to pass the bar to get the space lawyer license plate. I think it's probably up for grabs. <laughs> I might just have to go get one. Completely optional knowledge is presented by Greenpeace. It's produced by J.P. Davidson. Breakmaster Cylinder made our theme music. And me, I'm Andrew Norton. Head over to completelyoptionalknowledge.org to hear more episodes, to subscribe, and to, of course, ask us your questions because we need your weird questions to keep this thing going. Leave us a voicemail with your questions and feedback at 202-697-6912. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks with more Completely Optional Knowledge. And hey, do us a favor. If you do subscribe to the show, please give us a rating on iTunes. That would be huge. 